This morning we continue in our series in Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Before we get there, I don't know about you, but growing up, I loved TV game shows. Um, two of my favorite game shows on TV were The Price is Right, for obvious reasons, and Let's Make a Deal. And they both worked on the excitement of obviously winning something, but winning something that was hidden, something that needed to be revealed to the contestant. Now, The Price is Right usually did this right up front. You know, after you won the showcase show or the, the showcase. Um, showdown, you'd go up on stage and then they'd reveal what you were going to be, the bigger prize that you're going to be playing for. So the contestant knew ahead of time what they were playing for. But let's make a deal, you remember, and it's still still on TV. So, I mean, for those of you who haven't watched it, you can go and watch it. But let's make a deal worked off the premise that you played not knowing what was behind door number one, door number two, door number three, or in the different boxes or whatever they used to conceal the prize. But there was something, the promise of something good to come. Sometimes to heighten the tension, they would reveal a prize and say, you know, to the contestant, do you want this good prize, but you're going to give up the chance of a better prize? Or as we know, sometimes you didn't win anything. But the potential of not winning something great was there if you took what was good. You wait for the door to open and the prize to be revealed. And if you chose correctly, when the door was open, there was a lot of rejoicing. Now, this morning, our text isn't about a game show, but it's like those game shows in the fact that there's a lot of expectation, a lot of waiting to see what's been promised, and a lot of rejoicing when that promise comes. Jesus, God in the flesh, is revealed behind the doors of the temple. Let's read Luke 2, 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, which we read about in Leviticus this morning, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also 
so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and, went, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the At that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee and their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... You're this gospel writer, Luke. Thank you that he, like us, was not an eyewitness to your son Jesus when he was here on earth, but desired to know more deeply what he believed and investigated it for him and for others, including us, that we might have certainty certainty in our salvation, certainty in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we read of the birth of Jesus, one of the most well-known passages in the Gospels, mainly because it's heard read every Christmas season. We even talked about how it's part of it is read in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And we saw that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy for all the people. And we looked at the characters that Luke gives us in that account to help us to see how this birth of, the in, of Jesus, the incarnation of God, how this event is for all, peop, for all the people. We looked at the powerful, represented by Caesar Augustus, and talked about and saw how Caesar was at that time becoming to be known as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They didn't use the word Messiah, but the Christ, the Savior of the world. That This, uh, this uh, emperor worship was beginning at this time to take hold in terms of the Caesar being the most powerful an aspect of deity here on earth. And yet Jesus comes for the powerful, those to call them to use their power rightly, but also to call them to himself. We also saw the peasant represented in Mary and Joseph, those who are of poor estate, those who are in great need physically, but also spiritually. And then we saw the persona non grata, the outsider, the shepherds, those who are viewed as less than, of outside of the norm, of those who have no real standing in society. Jesus comes for all the people. This morning, we move on in the narrative just 33 days after Jesus is born when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to offer the proper sacrifice and to fill the, the law. This Jesus, this Savior is now brought to his temple. And this morning we see in our text that Jesus is the light of revelation. 
He's the light of revelation. He does, we see three things happening in this text. He reveals our need, he reveals his glory, and he reveals our hope. First, he reveals our need. And to see that more, uh, a little more fully, we'll go back to verse 21. We read that last week at the end of our text. But it really is kind of the, te- the, uh, the verse that kind of holds his birth narrative and this temple presentation narrative together. And if you remember, it said, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And we, we see this and we look at this because if you, uh, we might see this as just merely a statement added to the end of the birth narrative, right? Uh, to show Mary and Joseph's faithfulness to follow the law of Jesus being a true Jew, to say that Jesus that was, was done to him what was supposed to be done to him as a firstborn, as a male, all these things to make sure that we know that Jesus is fulfilling all that he is to fulfill. It is that. It is there to remind us and to show us that Jesus is truly a Jew, Jew of Jew. His parents were faithful, devout followers of God. But if we remember what we saw in the circumcision of John, on the eighth day, you remember this idea that the circumcision is on the eighth day, the new day of, that's dawning, the new day to come, the new day of the eschaton, of, of the new day of God keeping his promise of making all things new. Jesus, in his own circumcision, ushers in this new day. Jesus' circumcision is a one-time event that avails for all people. The foreskin, Paul says in Colossians 2.13, represents sin and rebellion against God. And even though Jesus is without sin, he takes humanity's place under the law as the sin bearer. You remember there was an intense argument in the New Testament church over whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And the issue is settled here in this passage. (laughs) This issue is settled here because Jesus, as our sin bearer, as the one without sin but takes humanity's sin on himself, Jesus' fulfillment of the entire Old Testament on our behalf, even the need of circumcision, the one who represents all humanity, all people, as the prophets talked about, were circumcised once and for all through this. That for, it's a forbearing of what will come and the ultimate sacrifice that he will give. And at the moment when his blood is first shed, right? There is shedding of blood here. That was one of the reasons that God instituted this rite in the Old Testament, this shedding of blood that was reminding his people of the shedding of blood needed to cover sin, that shedding of blood needed to take place to cut off the rebellion, (laughs) to cut off the sin and rebellion in our lives. At the moment that his blood is first shed, he receives the name given to him by the angel. Luke's hearers like us would know what Matthew has recorded, that this means he will save his people from their sins. 
Remember the angel Gabriel and, and talking and explaining to Joseph what is happening. He tells Joseph that they are to give him the name Jesus because he will save their, his people from their sins. And so already here in the life of Jesus, the infant, eight days old, his identity as being the one of our atoning sacrifices revealed in his name and in his circumcision. Our need for him is already displayed here as an eight-day-old little boy. Our need for him. He reveals this need by being the sinless sacrifice, the one who takes on humanity's sin for himself, even in this first rite of him growing in, as Luke puts it at the end of the passage, as they performed everything according to the law, as he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. So we see our need even in this first rite that is done so that Jesus might be the one who takes upon himself our sins, even the sinless one taking this on. But we also see our need in, in Jesus' parents once again. This idea uh, Jesus comes for the lowly, for those who know their need. Right? Luke gives us another hint of Mary and Joseph's great physical need that should also ref- be a reflection of our understanding of our spiritual need. Right, that Jesus comes for those who are poor and poor of spirit. Not just the mighty, not just the powerful, not just those who live in palaces and mansions. Right, Leviticus 12.8, we read earlier, said that the, a lamb was to be brought. But if a lamb couldn't be afforded, they would bring two turtle doves or two pigeons This helps us to understand that Mary and Joseph were of humble estate, as we've already read in in the narrative so far. They were too poor to afford a lamb. I don't know what a lamb went for back then. No idea. But whatever it was, they were too poor to bring a lamb, to bring the proper sacrifice. They had to bring something of lesser value that God allowed for those who could not afford a lamb. This helps to once again affirm that theme that we've already seen take place in Mary's Magnificat, the the great reversal, the way that God's kingdom comes to those who we do not expect. God's salvation is for all people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their standing is. But on a theological level, even deeper than that, no lamb was necessary because already at this 40 days, the 33 plus the 32 plus the 8, 33 plus 41 days, however you want to 
the Jews, they kind of had a weird way of, of, of counting their days sometimes. But already at this stage in Jesus' life, he is the Lamb of God. The one who fills the need that Mary and Joseph had for the proper sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God that we all need for the proper sacrifice brought to this temple. So we see here again that Christianity began and always begins with a spirit of need. A spirit of spiritual poverty, of knowing that we do not bring what is needed. This is the persistent refrain of Jesus' life. We heard it in Mary's Magnificat, right? For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. The angel's revelation to the outcast shepherds rather than to the high and mighty of Israel. The circumstances of Christ's birth echoed this refrain. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, verse 18. God did and does not come to the self-sufficient. This is the truth that we must remind ourselves of again and again. And you may get tired hearing it, but that is the truth that we must hear over and over and over again. That God does not come to the self-sufficient. We like to think of ourselves that way. We like to think that we can afford to bring what is, what is needed. That we can afford the lamb. We can afford as many lambs as we want. We can bring them. We have what it takes. We are self-sufficient. And yet, Scripture over and over and over again, both in the physical and in the spiritual sense, show us that we, in order to come, have to know ourselves as insufficient. We are not self-sufficient when Christianity is wrongly understood, it gives some an elusive sense of personal spiritual adequacy. <laughs> Even those who have been born again by the Spirit, we can wrongly turn spiritual progress into prideful self-sufficiency. I've achieved this in my spiritual life. I've done this. I've been a Christian for this long. Whatever it is, we can become self-sufficient a sense that we have arrived. And it happens, I think, all the time. Sometimes in really big, ugly ways, but usually in small ways that we might not even see. Thinking of ourselves as self-sufficient we must continually guard against this within ourselves. Our only adequacy, our only sufficiency is in Christ. The one who Mary and Joseph bring into, their, into the temple that day is our only adequacy. 
their only adequacy coming to the temple, coming to worship their God, is our only adequacy as well. So we see in our passage that this reveals our need. We are all needy. We are all in need. And we must continually fight against our understanding of ourselves as being self-sufficient. But he also reveals his glory. He doesn't always reveal our need, but he reveals his glory. Jesus, Scripture tells us in John, John 1, 14, the tab, he tabernacled among us in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Jesus is the new temple. And this is a theme through, we'll see throughout Luke. There's a theme that we've already seen throughout Luke 1, that Jesus is, re, that the, the, the presence of God, so to speak, is relocating Right? It's relocating to the womb of Mary. It's relocating as we see the incarnation take place before our eyes. The presence of the Lord who overshadowed Mary at Jesus' conception now dwells in bodily form in this infant child. And the movement of God's presence was well known to, to God's people. Right, It wasn't that God's presence was a static thing. God led out of Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's glory visibly came to dwell over the ark of the tabernacle and guide Israel on her travels. He, the, the glory of God would literally take up residence in the temple, in the tabernacle, and then when it was time to move, the glory of God would come up and would begin to move on. After the priests processed with the ark to the newly built Jerusalem temple, God took up residence there in 1 Kings chapter 8. And shortly before the first temple was destroyed, Ezekiel was given a vision and saw God's glory leave the temple in Ezekiel 10. And the same glory of God appeared to him in Babylon in Ezekiel chapter 1. And after the exile... The rebuilt second temple lacked the glory of the first temple. Right? It lacked not just the physical glory, but it actually lacked the glory of God coming to dwell in the temple like the first temple had. But God promised that his glory would return one day. His glory would come again. That the king of glory would come, Psalm 24, and the Lord himself would would come into his temple, Malachi chapter 3. And so, as Mary and Joseph enter the temple, this infant Lord brings the light and salvation for all peoples in his glory as he enters into his temple. The glory of the Lord has returned to the temple but now the glory resides in the person of Jesus Christ. And Simeon's eyes are opened to this reality, to this salvation, even though it has been cloaked in this 40-day-year-old Jesus. I mean, if you're Simeon and you're waiting for the consolation of Israel and you're waiting for the Messiah to come and you're waiting for this to come, 
when a 40-day-year-old Jesus is carried into the temple, is that your first thought? Wow, I bet that is the Messiah. Probably not. And yet, the Spirit of God is working and speaking in him, and he is given eyes to see. Eyes to see clearly what physically, I'm sure, was hard for him to see. This infant still wrapped in infant's clothing. Simeon is given eyes to see that this is indeed the glory of God. God in the flesh come into his temple. And Luke weaves this theme throughout his gospel, the metaphor of closed and opened eyes, of closed and open minds that he that he uses to show us of our need to see rightly. This pattern of closed and open eyes refers not just to physical vision, but also to the eschatological understanding of the work of Jesus, the, the work that Jesus come to do and will do and will continue to do. And this eye is the means by which a person is illuminated into seeing that the new era of salvation has come in Jesus Christ that those who are given eyes to see will see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Just as Simeon and Anna saw it as well. And as we are given these eyes to see, it reveals our hope. Simeon sees Jesus as the revealer of salvation Right, We see this revelation of our hope, this third thing that we see in our text. Simeon's eyes are opened to salvation. A salvation that is the light of revelation to all the nations, including the Gentiles. For Simeon to state this about this infant, Jesus confirms that he indeed did have spirit-infused eyes that saw this baby as the one who had been promised to bring the consolation, the hope of Israel. Now, often we think of Simeon as an old man, and the text actually doesn't say. Anna was clearly old. We don't know for sure how how old Simeon was. But whatever his age, the promise of the Messiah is of paramount importance to him. And he is content at this point, no matter what his age, to depart. (laughs) After he's seen the Lord's Christ, he says in verse 29, that he can depart in peace because he has now seen the Lord's Christ. Think about Simeon, no matter what age he is, at this point in his life, has been given eyes to see Jesus as who he is and what he will do. And he is content to depart. He is content in what God has promised him. 
think this is something for us to just take a moment to sit with. No matter where we are, no matter what our age, are we content in Christ? Are we content in, in the salvation, in the hope, in the understanding that we've been given in Christ? Are we content where we are? Are we content like Simeon that, say, that says, Lord, if it's my time, I am content because I have seen, not like Simeon saw, but I have seen with the eyes of faith, your Christ. Am I content? Am I content with who I am in you? Am I content in your plan for my life, whether that means that I depart <laughs> today or tomorrow or 30, 40, 50 years from now? Are we content because we have seen the Lord's Christ? Simeon is content because he has seen the inauguration <laughs> of a new life. Are we content in the new life that has been inaugurated in us? Simeon and Anna understand this hope this expectation that's personified in them being profoundly empty but profoundly full. This, they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and they will be filled as Jesus will, will preach later in, in Luke, did in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, later in the Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke. This idea that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. They long for the righteousness and the consolation that would come only through the Messiah. They came hungry and they received what few others in that exact way have received. But we've all received it. For all of us who have been given eyes to see spiritually who Jesus is and our need for him, we too have been filled. Our hunger and thirst for righteousness is fulfilled and filled in Christ Jesus the one who was the consolation that Simeon had been waiting for. Simeon's song is a beautiful example of the immediate response that we have. This new song that we sing as we understand the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. This new song the song that has never been sung before, but is sung now because Christ has come and Christ has redeemed his people. He is the consolation. He is the presence. He is the revelation that we have been longing for and waiting for. Simeon 
in this context. We see kind of throughout this reminder of of the, the good news, right? Simeon kind of, he hear, he's a herald of the good news like the angels were to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds. He's a herald of this good news through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anna, like the shepherds, responds to the good news by spreading the message, right? She hears Simeon's uh, rejoicing, his prophecy, his song, and she repeats it to all <laughs> right? She repeats it to all. She spoke of him to all who are waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. She spreads this message, the prophecy of Jesus' destiny. She spoke of him to all who are waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. This is our hope. Do we live with this expectation? the expectation that we see in the lives of Simeon and Anna? Do we live with this expectation of what Christ has done? See, we look back. They were looking forward through with faith. They were looking ahead of what they saw in front of them. We look back with eyes of faith. They looked forward with eyes of faith, and yet we look with the same faith with the same expectations, with the same expectations that transform how we see our days, how we see our trials, how we see our joys. Simeon and Anna had been waiting. We don't know what Simeon had been waiting through, but we know some of what Anna had been waiting through. There's an argument of actually how long she was a widow. The Greek is a little hard to interpret here. But she was, no matter how long she was a widow, she was only married for seven years before her husband died. Some think she was as old as 103 years old. So she would have lived likely 70, 80, 90, maybe even years without her husband. And yet the redemption that she was waiting for made that but a momentary trial. Do we live with this expectation that transforms our days, our trials, our joys, our sorrows, our hopes, our fears? This is the promise of the one who is revealed, of the one who reveals, who is the light of revelation. This light of revelation transforms 
Just like the darkness, the light in a dark room transforms what we see and how we understand what is around us. The light of Jesus, the light of Revelation transforms our expectations, transforms our days, our weeks, our months, our years. Jesus comes to us, to the needy, those who realize that he is our only hope. He has filled the hungry with good things. Today, it is those with a perpetual sense of spiritual need and spiritual hunger who live in the wonder of the incarnation the wonder of the light of revelation. Jesus is the whole of salvation. He's not part of it. He is it all. And this realization, as Simeon and Anna point us to, in their response, brings peace, brings hope. We come to new life as he brings us to the end of ourselves and then he raises us to new life. We are brought to the end of ourselves knowing our need, knowing our insufficiency and he raises us to new life and transforms our days, our trials, our joys. Jesus is the light of revelation. He reveals our need, he reveals his glory, and he reveals our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your Son, the light of revelation, who reveals our need for him, who reveals his glory as the only hope of our salvation and reveals that hope that we might have in him. Lord, no matter how many times we've heard this, or maybe if it's the first time, Lord, may this be our only, our only place of hope our only understanding of the salvation is in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be once again renewed in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.